0: Good evening, everybody, and welcome to episode number four of Imprint Cast, the podcast dedicated to the Australian boutique label In My name is Tony Meachas, and joining me is my regular colleague, John Matthews. How are you going, John?
1: Uh, Good, doing well, thank you. I look forward to uh, being here tonight and with our guests, so yes, doing well, thank you.
0: Yes, absolutely. And our guest today, um, she has been a regular on Indicator Cast, discussing future titles and joining uh, joining in a couple of episodes, but probably one of the most memorable episodes for me while I was recording with her was the episode we discussed about the movie Dragonwick, and that was mm. a great episode to record. I absolutely loved it, and I am pleased and, and honoured to have Suzanne from IndicatorCast and also has her own podcast, Laudanum and Lace, Suzanne, thank you for joining on your very first episode of Imprint Cast. How are you doing?
2: Hi there, thanks. Um, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for asking me. It's good to be talking to you guys again about film, of course.
0: Mm-hmm. Always talking, always talking about film with every with with you with you guys is just amazing. It's the highlight of my day, personally. I love it. Same. Looking forward to it. Indeed. And on today's episode, we'll be discussing the June 2022 release announcement. And the theme of that month is historical. And the reason we have Suzanne here is she is a fan of historical film. Why do you love historical film so much, Suzanne? Mm,
2: Well, they're very escapist, obviously, but I think it's the costumes, the settings, the idea of a different place in time. I'm also interested in history. I studied art history. Really, I just love how these kinds of historical films and fictions really bring the past to life and bring them to a modern audience. And we'll obviously talk about that a bit in the podcast today.
0: Mm -hmm. That's great. Uh, I love historical movies because, you know, growing up in a Greek Orthodox background, my family loved watching the old Easter religious films and the costume, the period design, the period and everything. It was, we loved it. And then I just grew to love even more, much more historical films. Like um, one of my all time favorites was, um, goodness, there's just so many. Cleopatra was one of them. And also, oh, there's just too many to mention, but probably my all time favorite um, film in the religious theme was the 10 commandments from 1956 that That's the film that got me into historical films. and um john how, how do you what do you think about historical films
1: Yeah, I, I like them quite a bit. And I think, like Suzanne said, um, <clears throat> they are a bit of escapism. Um I, I think the reason I like them so much is just they 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 are of a different time and, and we, we don't get movies like that anymore in terms of the lavish sets and the lavish production and costumes and <clears throat> just just beautiful works of art. I mean, on a scale, on how they were made. Um, now, you know, if you do a historical epic, I, I say it all the time, it's all just CGI. And like back then it was all, you know, practical sets. That's why, you know, films like Spartacus, you know, Kubrick Spartacus is one of my favourites. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, ju- I just love historical epics because... You learn a bit about history, um, depending on how accurate it is or not. But but you also get a a visual feast of of epic proportions. And yeah, like I said, it's something that we really miss nowadays is the epic sort of historical film. So yeah, I'm I, yeah I, I love them quite a bit when they um, they do pop up.
2: Mm. And what's interesting about uh, all these films today <laughs> and just this generally era of historical and biblical epics is that. If there's hundreds of people in a scene or even thousands of people, it really was hundreds or yeah. thousands of extras, not just CGI copied people.
1: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I was just going to say the, uh, I, I unfortunately saw that, what was that recent, that Ben-Hur remake? Uh, and, and yeah, it was all CG and it just, it just, it felt fake. It just lost its magic of, of these old films where it's what you see is what you get. So yeah, it's, um, that's just so much better. <laughs> mm, absolutely. Like the, that Ben-Hur remake,
0: yeah, cool. it wasn't great, believe it or not. But even the 1959 version is a remake of the old 1923 film. or
2: 1927,
0: mm-hmm. one of the two. But, um, but yeah, but nothing beats real people, real props, real practical effects. Uh, it, it's just epic in scale. It's, it, it's incredible. Like one of my favourite modern, like you said, Ben Hur. There was Mm -hmm. another film that was that's being failed that failed miserably at the box office when it was released. Was um, Oliver Stone's Alexander? I love that movie. I don't care what anybody says, even though even though it's historically inaccurate in many ways, and um, I just found it entertaining, way more entertaining than Troy. To be honest, I I know I'm probably going to get lambasted here, but I prefer um, Alexander over Troy any day.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting, these modern um, films with these settings and ancient world themes, they've all got their basis in this uh, sword and sandal and peplum cycle that started kind of mid to late 50s through to mid to late 60s, even though there were these big historical epics going back to the days of silent films. Um, and maybe a lot of people that see these modern blockbusters don't realize how prolific um, this this cycle of films was, both in Europe, but of course Hollywood with their big blockbuster epics
1: too. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. And another thing I was going to say, a lot of these, uh, you'll see a recurring theme with these. They're all, uh, in terms of how they're shot, the majority is shot in 2.35, which is just this beautiful wide scope. So, you know, it's a city scope. so. They all they capture that sort of epic scale um, very well, um, the way they're shot.
0: Yes, two three five, and also from other historical films from the fifties, the the robe from 1953, I believe, um, that was the very first film shot in CinemaScope with the aspect ratio of two five five by one, and um, another one from 1959 was what we just discussed, the, the the second remake of the first remake of Ben Hur from 1959. That was shot in a widescreen ratio of two seven six by one. That was a very much more ultra-wide film. And that that was just perfect. That just looked you can't see you don't get you don't see many movies like that anymore with shot in the cinemascope um ratio. The only one I've seen, most recent film, was um La La Land. <clears throat> that was shot in um two five five by one aspect, and I just thought uh, yeah, it was good for musicals back then, but it's one of those aspect ratios that's definitely for a historical feel, definitely yeah. for historical period pieces.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I just wish they shot more films like that, but I think now, because <clears throat> we've entered the sort of streaming era, I think they're more concerned about how it's going to look on a, a TV in a lounge room rather than a, a, you know, back then this was made for like a, a this was an event, these films were events, so made for a big big sort of audience. But uh, yeah, so... Hopefully, we will get more films like that, but I, I don't, I can't think of many in recent years, like you said, Tony, that's been shot in that ratio.
0: So, yeah. Yeah. In this episode, we'll be discussing the six June releases that are released on June 29, 2022. And um, Suzanne, what do you think of these six titles?
2: I was really excited when they announced them, just because I, it's all historical action and drama um but also it's something different i think and i like how imprint really mixes up their announcements we get a little bit of everything and with this lot of films we have an array of historical dramas uh four with a maritime theme two are based around the french revolutionary and napoleonic wars three of them fall into the sword and sandal genre, which we've just talked a bit about. They're all adapted from either a book or a play, and while being historical fictions, are all based on real historical events and feature at least one or more characters that are real people. And I know a lot of people are excited for these titles. Obviously, you guys are excited, I'm excited, But I did see a few snooze emoji and, oh, these are old man films. And, you know, that was in the comments. And I just could not disagree more. I'm not old and I'm not a man. Um, And I think they're great. We have Vikings, mutineers, land battles, sea battles, gladiators, crucifixions, big torture devices harems of beautiful women, Julius Caesar being murdered. We've got political intrigue and the Titanic sinking. That's some of the most epic stuff ever. And as well as some of history's most significant events and characters, this is literally stuff that has shaped the Western world as we know it today. It's inspired film, it's inspired art for centuries. And now we have these beautifully restored editions packed with extras for you to delve into as well. And I know for some people, history might remind you a bit of school history lessons and some old fart droning on about names, dates, places, but don't let this kind of uninspired, dry account of history put you off because film and historical fiction is where history really comes alive. As I mentioned before, it's about the people and characters. They might be just like you or I, but in a different time or place. And usually real life is even wilder and more interesting than fiction can ever be. And some of the films, especially the sword and sandal stuff, even flirt with elements of exploitation cinema, almost a precursor if you like. We also have elements of the horrific um, plus plenty of action and, and and adventure. And these are the kind of films you might have seen during the day on TV as a child and been quite transfixed by I know that's where I got my love of these kind of period adventure films. Is that where you guys kind of experienced these historical adventure films?
0: Definitely for
2: me. um,
0: Every um, Easter, all we did was watch um, historical epics on television. And um, look, the ones we always watched were The Ten Commandments and um, Ben-Hur. And King of Kings, they're like the top three films that we watch every Easter. But I fell in love with the um, with how the uh, how it looked, you know, the historical epic. I I absolutely adore it, and um, then I just watched more and more. And there's so many other different stories that 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 um besides Easter Easter themed stories. That's what I used to do when I was when I was a kid. But um, it, there was just so, I didn't realise when I was younger, there was so much more historical epics and historical s- tales to tell. And I just, you can't help but be transfixed by the beauty, the imagery, the costumes, and everything else. It, it's just stunning. What about you, John? How, about, how, do you, how did you um, start watching on historical epics?
1: Was it on TV as well? Yeah, very similar to you guys. <clears throat> it was um a, a lot of it on TV, uh, generally around Christmas time or Easter, or um and one of these films I have vivid memories being very sick at home, having a day off school, and um they actually played on TV as daytime TV, so <clears throat> you'd see these pop up quite a bit, and uh, and yeah, like, like you Tony, I was just sort of um, uh, uh, mesmerised by. Uh, the sort of time period and costumes, and it it is a very otherworldly when you see it. And um, <clears throat> I've always, uh, you know, sort of been a fan of the genre. So, you know, when these were announced, you know, same thing. Like I, um, I was very excited, but like you said, Suzanne, there were a few that were quite um not not, not too excited. But um, I think you know once you get into it, um, you know, it, it's a genre that's really rewarding, um, and it's it's just a great experience to see these films. Um, yeah, so. Definitely, first time would have to be TV for me.
2: I hope we can win some people over today with our <laughs> enthusiasm for these titles.
0: You know, I have a feeling we will, because, Suzanne, from from past discussions we've had with Indicator Cast, your discussions and your insights have always fascinated me and fascinated John, of course, and, of course, some other listeners love it too. So I'm sure you will be able to transfix some people to the historical epic. And um, now speaking of historical epics, we will get started with Title One, Barabbas. And Suzanne, would you like to kick us off with Title Number One?
2: Sure, I will read you the specs of Barabbas. So from the imprint website, it is uh, spine number 132, what happened to the man of violence in whose place Christ was crucified? An epic account of the thief Barabbas, who was spared crucifixion when the Jews chose Christ in his place. Struggling with his spirituality, Barabbas goes through many ordeals, leading him to the gladiator arena where he tries to win his freedom and confront his inner demons. The 1961 religious epic film directed by Richard Fleischer and starring Anthony Mm -hmm. Quinn as Barabbas, Silvana Mangano, Jack Palance, and Ernest Borgnine. And we have a quote here on the website. Right for reconsideration, the greatest story ever told has been retold and retold, but Barabbas brings it back from the dead. That's a quote from filmcomment.com. And we have some special features and technical specs. So uh, 1080p high definition presentation, special features to be confirmed, theatrical trailer, original aspect ratio, audio English LPCM 2.0, optional English subtitles and limited edition slipcase on the first 1500 copies with unique artwork. So Tony, like you said, you said some of these biblical epics do have different topics than your usual kind of Easter, etc. and Barabbas is certainly one of them. Uh, it was from 1961, and it's an American-Italian co-production, as we mentioned, directed by Richard Fleischer. You guys are probably very familiar with his work. He's directed many movies, um, many very well known movies, including 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Fantastic Voyage, Compulsion, Soylent Green, and The Vikings from 1958, which we'll also mention when we talk about The Long Ships. Um, the actual movie is based on the 1950 Nobel Prize winning novel by. Uh, It's a fictional story that explores the life of a minor Biblical character, Barabbas, who's only mentioned briefly in the Bible. He's a criminal awaiting execution by crucifixion, but during Passover and what was likely the Roman holiday of Hilaria. It was customary for the Roman prefectus, who at this time was Pontius Pilate to commute one prisoner's death sentence and let them free. This was decided by the crowd. The crowd chose Barabbas, or maybe they were calling for his death and Pilate manipulated the situation. The result was that Barabbas was freed and Jesus was crucified in his place. From here we descend into this very dark world of Barabbas played by Anthony Quinn marvelously, as he spends the rest of his life coming to terms with his survival over this man that was so beloved by Christians and hailed as the son of God. In essence, he faces this massive spiritual crisis because he wants to believe but he can't grasp Christianity or what God is asking of him. He chooses instead to be pragmatic and carry on with his old ways. Despite moments of conscience, it's this way. It's an extremely interesting character. He's bad, but also at times noble and good. And Anthony Quinn's nuance performance is outstanding. And at this time, it was also decreed by the Romans that any prisoner pardoned on a holiday may not be executed by the state, which Barabbas finds out when he inevitably re-offends. So instead of death, he's sentenced to slavery in the grim Roman sulfur mines, which is a death sentence in, his self, in itself. But he lives on and many years later becomes a slave to a noble family who dedicates him to gladiatorial combat. This gladiatorial part of the story is not in the book, but it works well in terms of this movie. It's very exciting. Have you guys seen Barabbas? Um,
0: It has been a while for me since I last saw it. I think it's been nearly... 20, 25 years since I've last seen it and I know I've seen it but to be honest with you I don't remember much of it but I do remember Anthony Quinn was really good in the film but watching this new imprint release coming soon it'll be basically watching it anew again for me so I'm really looking forward to watching that one again and I'm just excited for it because I remember it as a child when I was younger loving, I did like it and I loved it, I remember it but I just I remember loving it a lot but I just don't remember the film fully to be honest unfortunately uh, John how about you? Uh,
1: yeah it, it's another this is a film that I um, uh, upon seeing images of when doing research I remember I have seen this but once again many years ago as a kid I, I do have vivid memories of um, Quinn. Uh, But yeah, I I just can't remember much about it, but I do know that the historical figure, the religious historical figure uh, himself, so uh, a little bit about that history. But no, it'll be great to rediscover this again and with a fresh pair of eyes going into it.
2: Mm. Well, you guys are in for a treat because it is excellent. This film, it falls into the biblical epic, but it's so different from the typical biblical epic, which I think is why it's been maybe a bit forgotten over the years because it's actually a really dark film and it's about all this suffering and inner conflict of the character. Mm. It certainly doesn't have that glamorous polish of what we expect from a biblical epic of the time, especially Hollywood ones. Instead, it explores a gritty realism, so everyone's dirty and Barabbas consorts with criminals and sex workers and we really get a taste of the brutality of the time with graphic crucifixion scenes, the scourging of Christ and the very disturbing stoning execution of Rachel. Of course, we know that people were stoned to death in the Bible, but to see it depicted in detail in Barabbas is something else. Um, It's a scene that's imprinted on my mind forever. Do you guys remember that scene at all?
0: Vaguely, to be honest with you, quite vaguely. But I do remember there was a stoning sequence, but... (laughs) As I said, it's been so long ago, I don't remember it. But I do vaguely remember that astounding scene. How about you, John?
1: Yeah, I remember that. That was kind of the scene that stuck out to me. Um, I think maybe because I was a little horrified when I saw it. (laughs) When I was, yeah, like, yeah, like maybe 10 or nine when I saw this. But yeah.
2: (laughs) It is really disturbing, even though, I mean, we watch horror films, it's no gore fest or anything, but you expect the camera to turn away but it never does. We actually have to witness the stoning. It's almost like as a viewer, we're complicit. And this is one of the beautiful things about this film and the way it's staged that somehow the audience is complicit in all this suffering or a witness to it at least. Um, It also looks quite amazing Most scenes are either dark and dramatically lit to seem chiaroscuro in technique, like a painting, like Mm -hmm. Caravaggio and Diego Velazquez's religious paintings from the 17th century, or we have very bleak landscapes and earthy monochrome colour palettes. The crucifixion scene is also undeniably memorable. The depiction of Golgotha is eerie and surreal. And most interestingly, at the time of the crucifixion, there was an eclipse. It was described this way. And the world was thrown into darkness. And Richard Fleischer timed the filming of this scene to coincide with a genuine solar eclipse that took place on the 15th of February 1961. So the eclipse that you see is real. And because of this, there's something so fundamentally haunting and powerful about this scene. It has a supernatural quality. Do you remember that scene?
0: I do. I do remember the eclipse scene very
1: well. I, I can't know.
2: Well, wait till you see it again and bear in mind it's a real eclipse. And Wow. Um, Yeah, I mean, and just the kind of organisation to film at the time of this eclipse. You can't stuff that one up. (laughs) You've got one, you know, one go only. Yeah, it's quite a feat, I think. The other big memorable scene is, of course, the gladiatorial combat at the, uh, what I presume, is the Colosseum in Rome. In my opinion, it's one of the best depictions Of gladiatorial games. Um, It's got elephants, lions and pits of fire for the gladiators to fall into. It really begins to give us a taste of ancient Roman games which really were a huge dazzling spectacle. They were brutal and extravagant with fighting, sacrifices, public executions and animal fights. There were mock hunts where exotic animals from all over the known world were slaughtered. Thousands of animals could be slaughtered just during one event that ran over several days. It's like Peter's worst nightmare. And the filming locations for some of these scenes is actually the Arena di Verona in Verona, Italy uh that's one of the largest and best preserved ancient roman amphitheatres which dates to the first century um so contemporary kind of with this film other scenes are filmed in a mock-up of the arena built at Cinecitta film studios in italy this really adds to the authenticity of these combat scenes and like John said before there are no digital backgrounds no digital tigers this is all staged for real and it's really so impressive as hundreds of extras cheer on these gladiators with costuming being quite decadent and neoclassical rather than the spartan as in some other biblical epics do you remember any impressions of the gladiator fighting in this film?
0: Um, yes I do some of them I don't remember a lot of them but I do remember some sequences They were they they were they did they did look really well staged it, like um as you said, like no no um CGI animals, no CGI fire it's all real you can't you can't beat that. You, no. can't, you can't beat real, real um, pits real of alive.
2: fire.
0: Yeah, real pits of fire. Men
2: falling into pits of fire.
0: <laughs> well, no, no doubt. Of course, there was a safety net down there, but yep. um, but no, yeah, you can't beat real, real effects instead of CGI nowadays. You, you, you just can't replicate it. It's impossible to do to for to see a. Real real effects. Uh John?
1: Yeah, I, I do remember the Coliseum. That's actually <clears throat> one of the memories I have of this film is uh Anthony Quinn being in in the actual arena, if memory serves me. Um and yeah, yeah, it was just once again, it's just just images in my head uh from, from that time when I saw it. But yeah, just remember this this grand scale of um of the arena being being pretty spot on to, to the time period and how it operated. So yeah, just um, very cool stuff on how they recreated that that time period in the Colosseum.
2: Mm. Yeah, I, I really love the gritty, dirty atmosphere of this film, um, and the the violent aspect to it as well. It's somber, and as I mentioned, the antithesis of the Hollywood biblical epic with this surreal supernatural quality that it has at times it's got a haunting experimental soundtrack like I said it's quite violent um, with this deeply flawed main character not to mention an ambiguous ending which is very un-Hollywood it's not just another biblical movie this is something so much more which is why it it hasn't aged either. If you want to talk about, oh, you know, maybe some films have aged if you believe in that or not. Well, this hasn't, it's just a film about a very tortured man. And imprint uses that quote, the um, right for reconsideration. And I couldn't agree more. This is really a masterpiece in so many ways and should be appreciated as a great film, not just relegated to the biblical epics and sword and sandal pile. And I just can't wait to see it restored on Blu-ray, just looking so magnificent because that arena scene is really breathtaking. The crucifixion scene is great like it's I don't know like I know it's a big thing to say but the fact that it's staged during a real eclipse makes it you know a really great mm-hmm. cinematic moment of history I think
0: absolutely it certainly does
1: yeah absolutely and I'm i am glad that like I said Suzanne um you know you know it, it, I feel like this film would had been forgotten if it wasn't for this this reissue. Um I think a lot of these films, no one's touching these type of films. Like no other label I can think of uh even want to go near them. So um yeah, they are right for rediscovery. And um because yeah, like I said, that they're, they're these big epics that um, you know, in some cases like this film is a bit experimental, but it's just the case that, you know, no one would even be, you know bother going back and and, and discovering these films. So I'm glad that they're curating it to, you know, Help people discover it, so yeah it's it's a good thing. It's being reissued indeed and I think
2: even if you're not a fan of these kind of films, see this film. if you like film, you will like this film
0: of course, and um yeah, I think from that description the lenses that I think you may have attracted some listeners out there to get the to get barabbas because yeah, it's. It's one that has to be seen definitely, and then now especially when you mentioned about the eclipse and the um, and everything else. Oh, I'm sure they'll I'm sure they'll they'll they will listen to you and listen to your advice and 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 watch it. So yeah, it must be seen definitely. Okay, now for the next title, uh, John, would you like to discuss number one hundred and thirty three?
1: Uh, Yes, yes, I will. Uh, Number 133 is Julius Caesar. This is a uh, 1970 film, Um, so no grander Caesar, no greater cast. This 1970 adaptation styles Charlton Heston as Mark Antony, uh, the loyal apprentice of Emperor Julius Caesar, who's deceived and murdered by Brutus, Cassius and other power-hungry Roman officials. Uh, driven out of Rome, uh, the betrayers vow to destroy Mark Antony, who fight for Caesar and the future of the Empire at all costs. Uh, all-star cast featuring Charles Heston, uh, sorry, Charlton Heston, uh, Jason Robarns, John Gilgood, um, Robert Vaughan, uh, Richard Chamberlain, Diana Rigg, and Christopher Lee. Um, Director Stuart Burge has taken a pragmatic view, uh, there's a quote, uh, even of the poetry, a virial uh, drama of men making the most of their moments and making the world move with them. That's New York uh, Time magazine. Um, So this is a special edition which includes a 1080p uh, transfer, um, new audio commentary by film historians Lee um, Pfeiffer and Paul Scrabo. Uh, Shrebo, um, new video interview with critic Matthew Sweet, new video interview by critic and author Neil Sinyard. new interview featuring a um, feature with production crew. And it's in the original aspect ratio of that wide 2.351. It includes audio English uh, LPCM 1.0. Uh, which is a mono and optical English HOH subtitles and it comes with a limited edition slipcase for the first 1500 um, for the artwork. So um, I have seen this film. I saw it funny enough many years ago in a history class in ancient history. We watched this. We watched a few history uh, historical films and I think that they obviously put this on just so we could learn a little bit about the characters around that time period. Um, but once again, I haven't seen this film in, in quite many years since those high school days, and uh, I, I do recall enjoying it quite a bit. I do have some pr- very pretty good memories of it. Um, but, look, I'll, I'll pass it to you, Suzanne. Do you um, have some things to say about how this all ties in together with, with the other ones?
2: So I actually haven't seen this film, uh, and, of course, it's not to be confused with the very famous 1953 version, which mm. was in black and white. This is in colour. Um, I just have a bit of trivia about it, really, just not having seen it, but the director, Stuart Burge, he had lots of TV directing credits. He also directed another Shakespeare adaptation in 1965, which was Othello with Laurence Olivier, and that's a film that really wouldn't fly these days due to Laurence Olivier wearing blackface and playing Othello. Um, It is, of course, as I mentioned, Shakespeare, an adaptation of his play. Uh, John Gilgood, who plays Julius Caesar, was also in the 1953 version, but playing Cassius. Charlton Heston, as Mark Antony, played Mark Antony three times in his career first in 1950 and then in Antony and Cleopatra in 1972, which he also directed. Some other trivia, if you're eagle eyed, apparently there's a topless woman walking past in the background in the opening credits, which the senses somehow snoozed through. Um, Did you spot that in your history class, John?
1: Uh, yes, I, I do recall. Uh, I, I believe so. I remember the, I remember the class... And sorry, I, I'm just... My memory's a little murky. Um, it was an English class, sorry, because it was Shakespeare. Not Shakespeare. It. That's why we watched it. I was trying to remember why we am watching history. Uh, but yes, I, I do remember the class being a little rowdy over a few scenes. But... Yeah,
2: all those schoolboys' eyes glued yeah. to the screen. Oh, we saw bosoms <laughs> for, like, one second. So... The censors missed that. There's also a llama in one scene, which they're, of course, from South America, so presumably they would have not have made it to Rome in 44 BC. It also has the distinction of being Christopher Lee's 100th film, despite him only being on set for a day or so and having just a handful of lines. Mm -hmm. It apparently stays fairly close to the original material compared to some other adaptations um it has a slightly peplum flair to it offering a little bit more action and less gloss than the 50 1953 version um would that match in with your impressions john
1: uh definitely yeah yeah definitely did um uh, i'm very sure it was this one yeah because it was in color um and i do remember Christopher Lee having a brief role. So yes, it definitely does match up with that.
0: Mm.
2: So William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar was first performed in 1599. And at the time was in fact a historical fiction, like all these uh, films that we're discussing today. (laughs) The story documents the last day of Julius Caesar leading up to his assassination on the 15th of March, 44 BC. This day was the Ides of March, an important religious day in the Roman calendar, and a day by which all old debts and scores should be settled. Hence the saying, Beware the Ides of March, as warned by the soothsayer in the play and in this film. It's an astute political thriller which used classical history to express political concerns of Shakespeare's day, namely the succession issues surrounding the English throne. When this play was written, Queen Elizabeth was elderly, unmarried by choice, and without children yet thus far had refused to name a successor to the throne of england without a firm successor people f- feared that when she died england would be thrust into civil war as in ancient rome and of course the beauty of shakespeare is that it had these uh, political comments in its day but it can also be adapted and readapted in so many different ways for different eras, as we have seen um, with film in the 20th century. Have you seen it, Tony?
0: Um, I'm, with you, I'm like you, Suzanne. I have only seen the Marlon Brando 1953 version of Julius Caesar. I have not seen this one, but um, I am looking forward to it when, the, when this release comes out.
2: Mm. So I guess from this one, if you haven't seen it and you're like us, uh, we we kind of know what to expect because we know about Julius Caesar and the Shakespeare play. Uh, If you don't know anything about those things, I'm sure you'll find it very exciting. So I guess we can expect political intrigue, thrills, um, some fighting, some lying, some double crossing. Definitely a murder, and apparently the murder scene in this version is quite powerful, and also war.
0: Awesome. I'm really, I'm really looking forward to this version. Um, John, did you want to continue on with um, number one
1: thirty-four? Yeah, definitely. So um, that was Julius Caesar. Um, so moving on, we have the Nelson affair, uh, which is imprint number one thirty-four. Um. <clears throat> so, uh, from the imprint website, that Hamilton. That excuse me, that Hamilton bitch. Well, perhaps I am, but I'm the woman he wants. All right. I wonder what context that's in regards to? So, uh, young George uh, Matcham visits his uncle, Lord Nelson, and the vulgar Lady Hamilton. Uh, with the clear eyes of youth, he measures Nelson's uh, stature and notes his feet of clay. And yet Nelson is a, is a hero, a great man. How can this be resolved? Meanwhile, the combined French and Spanish fleet puts out to sea. Scripted by acclaimed British author uh, Terence Radigan uh, and starring Peter Finch, Glenda Jackson and Anthony Quayle, uh, there is a quote here: Terence Radigan's script is witty and sophisticated. That's from the Los Angeles Free Press. Um, so this special edition includes a 1080p high definition transfer, um, new video interview with critic Matthew Sweet, a new video interview uh, by critic and author Neil Synod, uh new video interview with actor Michael Jason, theatrical trailer. Aspect ratio is. To be confirmed. Audio to be confirmed. Optical English Hoh subtitles, and uh, it's a limited edition with a slipcase for the first fifteen hundred, with some very nice art. Um, this is one I, I have not seen, um, so I'm, I don't have too much to say. Um, Tony, this one you're familiar with. Um, not me
0: either, unfortunately, but but I am intrigued. I'm looking forward to this one, Suzanne.
2: No, I haven't seen it, and I think we would not be alone because when I was reading up a bit on this movie, it seems as though it's not had any release since VHS. Mm. Um, So it's a real mystery, and there's not a good many reviews online, so I'd say it's been quite underseen for quite a long time. It's also got an alternative title, which is bequest to the nation Mm. um it's directed by James Sellen Jones it stars Peter Finch as the Admiral Lord Horatio Nelson and Glenda Jackson as Lady Hamilton and of course we know she is no stranger to the costume drama uh you mentioned it's written by Terence Rattigan and Based on his play from 1970. The film came out in 1973. It's set during the Napoleonic Wars and French Revolutionary Wars, as is Damn the Defiant, which we'll talk about a bit later. The film takes place late in Lord Nelson's life, centering around 1805 before the Battle of Trafalgar, where he was, of course, killed. And when you think of history's greatest, most infamous, and most retold love stories, who do you guys think of?
1: Oh, sorry. Do you mean in in, in stories like what, like uh, Romeo and Juliet, or yeah, uh, yeah, the, the, those sort of. That's the one that came to mind immediately. <laughs> sorry, yeah, just Antony like a... and
2: Cleopatra.
1: Cleopatra, yeah. Ones that've been retold over and over. Yeah.
2: Captain Smith and Pocahontas. Helen of Troy and Paris. Mm -hmm. So they're all among these great love stories and certainly among the ranks is Lord Nelson and Lady Hamilton, who scandalised Europe with their love affair in the late 17th and early 18th century. Lord Nelson is one of the most successful naval commanders in history, winning Britain many great victories as a strong leader and master strategist. During his life, he was celebrated as one of Britain's greatest heroes and was a huge celebrity. And Lord Nelson is usually depicted as this very dashing, battle-hardened figure with only one arm, an eye patch, so he's got a bung eye uh, and a gnarly duelling scar across his face. He's lost an arm in battle, that is true, and he was also blinded in one eye, but he did not actually wear an eye patch in real life, that's just for the movies. Meanwhile, Lady Emma Hamilton started her life as a maid before becoming a model and dancer. She became what we might refer to as a courtesan, A beautiful and fashionable woman who was mistress to a succession of rich and powerful men. She was considered one of the most beautiful women of her age but was also talented, accomplished and cultured so even though she may have been considered vulgar as you know in quoted in this movie I really don't think she was at all She was painted more than 70 times, being depicted as all manner of classical goddesses and other characters, mainly by artist George Romney. And at the age of 26, she was married to the much older Sir William Hamilton, English ambassador to the Kingdom of Naples. And she soon became very close with the Queen of Naples. She was in fact, one of her closest confidants. This is where she entered into the political realm and was embroiled in the machinations against revolutionary France, where the queen's sister, who was in fact Mary Antoinette, had been executed by guillotine in 1793. Mm. This is also where she first met Lord Nelson, with whom a love affair ignited, becoming legendary, despite them both being married, The affair was scandalous. Imagine the tabloids today going crazy for some celebrity couple or, you know, affair. And that's how it was with these guys. They were big celebrities of their day. And Lady Hamilton was unfortunately demonised as a harlot, a temptress, a sexual manipulator and a shameless social climber. She's been largely maligned and unfairly treated by history and many people might be familiar with the very famous depiction of their love story in That Hamilton Woman or Lady Hamilton as it's known from 1941, starring Laurence Olivier and Vivian Leigh as Lady Hamilton. Uh, Have you guys seen that one?
0: That one I have. I have seen that that Hamilton woman. I I will never forget um, Lawrence Olivier and Vivian Leigh in that film. They were they were spectacular, and of course, there were there were a couple in real life also, and they and it made the um, love story more realistic and more powerful.
2: Yeah, they're hot in that film. It's so great. It was indeed. Uh, have you seen
0: it, John? The Hamilton woman.
1: No, unfortunately not. It's one I I am aware of, and uh, it's been on my radar for a while. So I think I'm going to have to. I actually want to see this now before I see the, this version of the film. So I'm going to track it down.
2: Yeah. So if you've seen that movie, you'll be you know you'll be a little bit up to speed with this film. I think, although this is, I believe, a far different uh, adaptation of the story. The 1941 costume epic is very romantic, and it treats Lady Hamilton as a sympathetic and patriotic hero, while the Nelson affair seems to play into the stereotype of Lady Hamilton as a sexual virago and siren. I had a quick look at some clips on YouTube and Glenda Jackson's performance seems quite torrid. Um, She lurches around drunkenly playing A real trash bag and I actually do hope that is the case from my first impression because if it is like that I'm sure it'll be highly entertaining regardless of whether it's historically accurate or not so what can we expect so Glenda Jackson playing a rowdy disagreeable drunk trashy lady in a corset um apparently some clever dialogue, a torrid PG-rated bodice ripping love affair, and apparently a big naval battle to end it all off. Well so.
0: looking forward to that. And um now for number one hundred and thirty-five. Uh, Suzanne, I'll leave that one with you.
2: A night to remember, spine one hundred and thirty-five the greatest sea drama in living memory, told as it really happened. The classic documentary drama based on Walter Lord's book about the sinking of the Titanic in 1912, told from the perspective of second officer, Charles Lytola, played by Kenneth Moore. The story follows the supposedly unsinkable ship, as she embarks on her maiden voyage and ultimately founders in the North Atlantic Ocean. From veteran British director Roy Ward Baker, and the quote we have for this one is, a restrained ensemble drama that manages to intertwine a dozen different stories without tripping up on any of them. It relies on real life survivor testimony for almost every line and incident to immensely moving and dignified effect, The Guardian. We have some special features and technical specs, 1080p high definition presentation, a new video interview by critic Matthew Sweet, new interview with film historian Joe Botting, the documentary, The Making of A Night to Remember, and I have to say, this is an excellent documentary, so watch it. Uh, also with more features to be announced apparently we have a theatrical trailer the original aspect ratio l p c m 2.0 mono audio optional english h o h subtitles and a limited edition slipcase on the first 1500 copies with unique artwork and i think we've all seen this film it's probably maybe the most well known and seen of all
1: these films? Uh, yes,
0: I have definitely seen this one.
1: Yeah, so same here. I, I really like this film a lot. <clears throat> yeah,
0: I've, I've all the type ti- the films made based on the on the Titanic story, this one will always be my favorite. I absolutely adored I adore um a Night to Remember.
2: Mm. And of course um it came out in nineteen fifty eight. As we all know, the Titanic was famously proclaimed the unsinkable ship mm-hmm. that struck that iceberg and sank in the North Atlantic on route between Southampton and New York on the 15th of April 1912. It's directed by Roy Ward Baker, and I'm sure we've all seen a great number of his films, um, He directed a lot for Hammer, and I know we're all Hammer fans. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Yeah, he did Quartermass and the Pit, Vampire Lovers. Ah, great book. Yeah, Scars of Dracula, uh, Dr Jekyll and Sister Hyde, which is one of my favourites. Same here. Yeah, he Mm -hmm. also did Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, um, Mm -hmm. and then also Asylum, and now The Screaming starts for Amicus fans, so... We've all seen some of those movies and that's just the tip of the iceberg, really, in his directing credits. Oops, sorry about the iceberg pun. (laughs) Anyway, yeah. Um, It's a British social realist docudrama film based around the 1955 book by Walter Lord, which was at this time the most detailed account of the Titanic sinking focusing on the ship's final fatal hours before it slipped below the dark ocean. Walter Lord personally interviewed 63 surviving passengers and meticulously compiled actual witness accounts and evidence to build a picture of the night that the ship sank. It was a bestseller and the first really significant book published about the Titanic around 40 years because although it was a huge media story in its day interest in the event had waned and there was not yet the phenomenon of titanic buffs even today the book is still regarded as a definitive resource about the titanic it was also very important historically in chronicling and bringing together these survivors' stories while they were still alive, which also makes this film extremely important Mm -hmm. as a dramatised document of these primary sources. And the docudrama tag might lead people to think this is some kind of dry account, but it's not at all. The film has a wonderful ensemble cast, as it says on the imprint site, it has high production values and like the book aims to give the story a very human side rather than a mere forensic account of what happened during the disaster it also has some huge set pieces including the very famous sinking scene and this sinking scene haunted me as a child it's really chilling um do you guys agree
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yep, yep. Even even when you <clears throat> actually do show it, and once again, it is practical, um, but it still has a quite an impact, even being a little practical model. It, it still looks amazing, it going down.
2: Mm. And the tension really builds to this point where it sinks. So where things have really descended into utter chaos, as people try and flee it's really edge of your seat intensity and the climax when the ship descends into the water is just eerie don't you agree mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely i like how the film it builds the tension and um i, I like how you said earlier it is really a character study because you've got all these classes and, and different people clashing and and people not taking it seriously people actually taking it seriously some people just sitting in the dining room it's uh, thinking it's just like a little bump, and it's it, it's quite interesting how it descends into chaos by the end of it. And and speaking of um, extras, you know you've got hundreds of of extras running around. It's just quite a spectacle, and how they recreated the ship, like little parts of the ship, all the way down to the the steam room to the to the dining room. It's it, it it's it's a magnificent film on how it was constructed.
2: Mm. and particularly in the black and white film format, I think because. You have to think about when this actually happened. The Titanic disappeared in the early hours of the morning after 2 a.m. And first of all, all the lights went out. So they were out there in the middle of the ocean. It was absolutely pitch black, freezing and silent Apparently, with only the frightened screams of dying people piercing the air, it was described by survivors with words like supernatural and ghastly. It would have been so utterly terrifying and gut wrenching and unreal. And the black and white film just adds to that atmosphere of monochrome, nighttime, darkness. As I said, it's really chilling and quite scary
1: it is and I also like how the the moon reflects on the water I, I have I remember that quite vividly like it's just eerie it's just that's the only bit of light in the darkness and it's mm. and it's completely pitch black like you said And I think um and it's great you know this director being sort of a horror gothic director was perfect. For this type of film, because I think the, as you all know, the famous you know, James Cameron one, it's good, but it romanticizes, you know, the tragedy. This is just showing it how it really was in an eerie sort of, like said, Suzanne, almost very supernatural and creepy sort of event that occurred. It's it's quite a horror story. <laughs> that's what it really is.
2: Mm. Yeah, that's interesting how you brought up his, that, you know, gothic sensibility, um, but put into another genre you know it really does work
1: yeah very stark black and white cinematography yeah
2: Mm.
0: it does absolutely oh I I still as you said John earlier about the the moonlight reflecting in the in the water that that was that was striking I do remember that very well Mm.
2: Mm. so the estimated budget of the film was £600,000, which is today's equivalent of around more than $13 million. So it was at the time the most expensive British film ever made. And you did mention all those extras and the big set pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, you, you know, used their money on all that. It was critically acclaimed and it's still widely considered one of the most historically authentic of all titanic dramatizations. The characters and storylines are fictional, uh, with the characters being a mix of an amalgamation of several real-life passengers and actual historical figures, some of whom were renamed for legal reasons. But the main events are considered generally historically accurate to the best of their knowledge at the time, with a few exceptions, the main one being the way in which the Titanic sunk. Until the wreck was discovered in 1985, it was not confirmed that the ship had broken in half when it went down, which is what it actually did. And we see that, of course, in James Cameron's Titanic, Um, at this time it was rather assumed that it went down whole as portrayed in this movie Mm. of course you can go online you can read all about every small historical inaccuracy but it ruins the magic of this movie because the authenticity is in the realism behind the actual stories and accounts on which this is based it's meant to convey those people's stories and experiences. Um, It also, as John said, had great attention to detail, um, technical detail in the making of the film, with the actual blueprints of the Titanic used to create the sets and families of some of the deceased passengers portrayed in the film were also consulted. Production was overseen by William McQuitty, who had actually witnessed the launch of the Titanic as a child. Technical advisors to the film included Titanic survivors Edith Russell, the famous fashion stylist and journalist, uh, journalist the schoolteacher Lawrence Beasley, and crewman Commodore Harry Gattridge and Joseph Boxall who was the last living Titanic officer until his death in 1967, when at his request, his ashes were scattered over what he calculated was the probable resting place of the Titanic. So that's interesting little trivia. Um, The living connection to the actual disaster makes this film particularly poignant and significant especially now that the event has slipped from living memory in essence it's like a real glimpse into the past uh, from the voices of these people but why is the sinking of this ship so historically significant and why does it fascinate and haunt people to this day to the point where people are titanic buffs and quite obsessed with it why do you guys think
0: well, <clears throat> it has been named the unsinkable ship, okay, okay. and on its maiden voyage, it hits an iceberg and it sinks. So, it does. Um, it does. Um, bring up the question: If it's unsinkable, why did it sink? And um, what what like um, I know some. I believe some Titanic buffs went into ex- extreme detail of how um of how the ship was um. I believe it was made out of iron, and it, and it just um, and the, and that doesn't break back then. But that's what they believed, I be- I, I gather. And uh, of course, the iceberg broke it, and it just sank. I, I think that's one of the main reasons I believe that um, why there are Titanic buffs out there and who are curious about the fact that it was named the unsinkable ship, but it sank on like its main maiden voyage.
2: Yeah, and we definitely know now exactly. How and why it sank, and those kind of people got, yeah. you know, got to that information through the evidence and these accounts. But initially, these accounts were what we first had. What yeah. do you think, John?
1: Ah, uh, exact same thing that Tony was saying. The first thing that comes to mind is unsinkable because uh, that's what it was called. But I think um, it's also just a, <clears throat> a fascinating piece of history, and I think uh, as a mystery, how. And the fact that this this was such a prestigious ship that held such elite, you know, uh, class uh, and people in society, how this could happen to them also fascinates people further, how this, you know, th- th- this this tragedy occurred. And I think uh, there is mystery. I mean, I think we know what happened, but there is mystery on how this, this could really happen, like how a <clears throat> skilled, um, uh, you know, a s- a series of um, uh, crewmen could allow it to happen as well. So... Uh, yeah it's really a fascinating story that people it, it comes in waves like I said, this film's been in the 50s and obviously had the um the cameron one and who knows we may have another titanic revival soon but i think that yeah it's just been a fascinating uh tragedy in in history that people just can't seem to let go of um mm. the, I
2: mean. yeah and despite being one of the worst maritime disasters in peacetime there were other shipwrecks that caused greater loss of life, but maybe it's also because the sinking of the Titanic coincides with um, the end of the Edwardian era. So it's one of the great events that marks the end of the Edwardian age, which that age generally encompasses the period of around 1901 to World War One. It was considered a lavish gilded, progressive age, and all of these ideals are really exemplified in the Titanic. It was a great achievement of modern engineering while also being the height of luxury, and like you say, the passenger list included some of the most mm. prominent and wealthy people of the era, uh, including nobility, business and media identities, that's artists, um actors writers and the Edwardian era is actually a bridge between the Victorian era and the modern and it was a time of great change when social structures and values of society were changing these rigid historical social structures are very apparent as you say in the story of the Titanic where the survival of passengers largely relied on their gender and class, with Mm. um, third class or the lowest class males experiencing the highest mortality rate. But the sinking of the Titanic was also a metaphor for the sinking of the Edwardian age. The event itself rocked people to their core, it was like a loss of innocence and confidence and the beginning of modern anxiety when much of the certainty of what was upheld in traditional societal values just disintegrated and the world, it really changed and it changed quite rapidly. And what's what's your favourite Titanic film? Is it this one?
0: This one is definitely my favorite.
1: Yeah, th- th- this one is as well. It's actually the first Titanic film I ever saw, and I think th- it's got a bit nostalgic because it stuck with me all those years. But um, yeah, the Cameron one's great, don't get me wrong. But this definitely is is, is still my favorite. Oh, yeah,
0: well, yeah, the Cameron one will definitely have a place in a lot of people's hearts because for the modern for the for the modern audience, that'll probably be their favourite obviously, but um but of course upgraded effects and more and more historical accuracy as you said Suzanne with regarding the, the, the ship splitting in half. Um yeah, but for but to me personally, a night to remember will always be my favorite Titanic film.
2: Yeah, I agree. It was the first one I saw and it really affected me. Um due to that intensity and kind of almost thriller-like aspect. So there's a common misconception as well that this is the first film made about the Titanic, but it's definitely not. It wasn't even the first adaptation of A Night to Remember. The first was an American TV play in 1956. And a few years earlier, we had 1953's Titanic directed by Jean Negalescu, starring Clifton Webb, Barbara Stanwyck and Robert Wagner. Uh, Have you seen that one?
0: That's the first Titanic film I saw, the Ah. 931.
2: Yeah, so these productions are partly credited for the book, A Night to Remember being such a hit, as there was a renewed interest in the disaster. There was also even a Nazi propaganda epic about the Titanic made in 1943, directed by Herbert Selpin, who he was actually arrested during the filming by the Gestapo and then found dead in his cell. And 1958's A Night to Remember, what we're talking about today, even lifts some shots directly from his film, which are uncredited. I know you can look up online and find out exactly which ones they are, if you're interested. Um, Yeah, uh, but the first Titanic film made was actually saved from the Titanic, released in 1912. Yes, that's right. Filming started barely a month after the tragedy and it starred Dorothy Gibson the then 22-year-old American actress, an actual Titanic survivor. Mm -hmm. Dorothy had garnered fame being on Vaudeville before moving onto Broadway and becoming a famous cover girl of her day. She was one of the highest paid performers of the era, but after all of this hard work, she needed a holiday. But boarding the Titanic after touring Europe with her mother, was not the relaxing holiday vacation that she was looking for when the titanic hit that fateful iceberg dorothy was still dressed in her evening attire so gown and long gloves and she knew that something bad was happening from the get-go despite the crew's reassurances that everything would be fine she was in a state of panic which apparently led her to be the very first person onto the first lifeboat launched and you have to remember initially people didn't expect the boat to actually sink and many people didn't want to board the lifeboats as they thought it would be safer to wait on deck until they were rescued but Dorothy was out of there she was apparently utterly hysterical as well And just days after arriving home, she began filming Save from the Titanic and wore the same clothing that she'd been wearing on the night. She enjoyed a lot of publicity and fame surrounding the event, giving numerous interviews, embellishing her story to the point where she made herself out to be a hero, but she was basically capitalising any way she could And she and the film were widely criticised for capitalising on this tragedy. It was seen as poor taste and it really is. The film has since been lost, destroyed in a studio fire in 1914. So all that remains are just a few photographs and stills of Dorothy wearing the clothes that she wore on the night the Titanic sunk. And as just another piece of totally off-track trivia, apparently Susan from Citizen Kane was also based on Dorothy.
0: That I didn't know.
2: <laughs> there you go. I, I read that. So apparently she wasn't very happy about it either, but yeah. <laughs> um, and then as we know, A Night to Remember would definitely not be the last cinematic version of the Titanic. No. There's been all kinds of Titanic movies from serious TV dramas to crazy B movies and of the James Cameron epic which the whole known world must know about Are there any other Titanic adaptations you like any of the crazy B movies
0: Um there's always a sequel to, I know there are some B grade sequels Titanic 2 um, well, that-
1: that's an asylum masterpiece. That
0: Oh one. wow! <laughs> well, we can't forget the Simpsons, the Thousand Dollar Movie, Titanic, and then just oh, that was funny. But no, you But with uh, with for the Titanic movies, definitely the one to watch is A Night to Remember.
2: Mm, I always liked that film, uh, Raise the Titanic. That was one I liked. Yes, Which,
0: yes, I like that yes. one
2: too. Yes. Yeah. Um, And James Cameron, he did actually see A Night to Remember as a boy and it was a big influence on him. He even copied some scenes almost word for word. So if you watch A Night to Remember and then watch his Titanic, you'll be able to pick them. So basically this is the film that influenced and was the template for what is at the time of this recording the third highest grossing film of all time which used to be the highest grossing film of all time when it when it came out mm. so i hope that everyone's heart will go on for this film <laughs> mm. i think it also
1: influenced the disaster epic i mean it was one probably one of the first of its kind the, the disaster film
2: yeah it definitely um paved the way for other Disaster films like, I don't know, Towering Inferno.
1: Poseidon Adventure. Yeah,
2: Poseidon Adventure, Earthquake, all those films. Um, It was an influence on those, that whole genre that came later of disaster movies. So you guys looking forward to this one? I I am. It'll be fantastic. I mean, I know it's had a release already on Blu-ray, right?
0: yes it has it, it, i believe the, yes the criterion collection have that one and that is a yeah, that, that's the version i have for the time being that i have as well but it is i'm looking forward to seeing the new features on of imprints that the ones that are going to be announced soon mm,
2: Same here. Great to, yeah great to get it for australia
1: oh absolutely yeah, yeah and this is a better edition because it has more extras than criterion and um and once again just a beautiful striking original poster art of the ship going down just um magnificent it's, it's incredible
2: yeah i think i think this will be a very popular title um even though it's i think the oldest title that we're talking about today i know there's a lot of people out there really into the titanic and into this film
1: yeah absolutely I even went on a Titanic ride about twenty odd years ago at Fox wow. Studios. So yeah, then, uh, I went
0: on. That yeah, platform. do you
1: remember? I, you? I, I thought was that a dream. And I did some research, and I'm like, no, that wasn't a dream. There <laughs> the Fox Studios
0: backlot tour in uh, at Moor Park.
1: Yep, 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 and it was yeah, awesome. I went on that oh boy, that was. Uh, awesome. Yeah, like like it would shake, or the water would break out. It was it was it was amazing. I mean, that was Titanic mania around that time. <laughs>
0: it was like I, when but I, there was two different levels. There was two different levels: the high class area and the low class area that you could go yeah, to. That's right. I went to the yeah. low class area. I don't know, but what did you do, John? If you remember?
1: Yeah, low class from memory. Like I just remember all these pipes and steam, and yeah, yeah, that was definitely the low class area. <laughs> yeah,
2: definitely. <laughs> You didn't go into the paint me like one of your French girls' room?
1: No. <laughs> no, we didn't. Costanza? <laughs> me? No. No, no, I didn't. <laughs> uh,
0: oh, I missed that place. But Mr. I would love to do that right again.
1: Yeah, yeah, because it um it shut, yeah, shut down years ago, didn't it? Oh, it shut
0: ago. down over twenty years ago, yeah.
1: yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I, I thought I dreamt it I'm like, no, no, that, that was real. So yeah, that just just <laughs> the nugget, nugget of Titanic trivia.
0: <laughs> Alrighty. Now that was, that was fascinating stuff, Suzanne. Thank you for that insight. Um, yeah, now onto imprint collection number 136. Damn the defiant, or it's also known as HMS defiant released in 1962 um, the cry was mutiny, and the decks ran red. Alec Guinness must battle a mutinous crew and Napoleon's fleet in the rousing historical adventure Damn the Defiant. As commander of the British warship HMS Defiant, the humane Crawford, played by Alec Guinness, strives to maintain order throughout the ship and against the ceaseless brutality of sadistic first mate Scott Paget, played by Dirk Bogard. After Crawford is injured in a fiery battle with a French treasure ship, Angry Seaman Bizard, played by Anthony Quayle, leads the crew to mutiny when Scott Paget takes over. But when a vengeful sailor murders Scott Paget, the Defiant crew must decide between saving their country or their own lives. Directed by Lewis Gilbert, who directed Imprints release of an imprint release of Alfie, and of course the James Bond Moonraker. MovieScene has described this, uh, MovieScene.com has described it as superior performance from Alec Guinness. Special features and technical specs are 1080p high-definition presentation, special features to be confirmed, theatrical trailer, original aspect ratio of 2.35 by 1, LPCM 2.0 stereo audio, optional English hard-of-hearing subtitles, Limited edition slipcase on the first 1,500 copies with unique artwork. I unfortunately have not seen Damn the Defiant, and, yeah, it does look really good. I'm really looking forward to this one. Um, Suzanne, have you seen this one?
2: No, I haven't, but I'm very excited, to It looks great.
0: It does. Uh, John?
1: Uh, no, also one I haven't seen, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, it just sounds fascinating, like a sort of um, uh, internal conflict film uh, on the one location. So yeah, I'm I'm very keen to see this. Um, probably be one of the first ones I'll I'll chuck mm. in as well. Same here.
2: Mm, same for me. So I do know it's adapted from the 1958 novel Mutiny by Frank Teasley. Uh, it's set at the height of the French Revolutionary Wars in 1797. I I watched the trailer, but as I said, I haven't seen it. So I can tell you a little bit of the history behind what this movie is based on. Um, so the French Revolutionary Wars were sparked in 1792, pitting the monarchies of Europe against revolutionary France. France declared war on European powers opposed to revolution, while the British and its allies' aim was to stop the spread of revolution. That's the historical backdrop to what is a fictional story, uh, loosely based on similar mutinies around this time. There were two major mutinies that occurred in the British Royal Navy at this time. They were the Spithead and Knorr mutinies, and they marked an increase in mutinies with crews revolting against their command, usually to demand better pay and conditions, but also on occasions it was triggered by politics or other concerns that the sailors had. In this movie, the mutinies triggered by the sadistic treatment of the crew by the officers. And this is a film I'm really, really excited to see because I've seen it described um, with really great reviews and one of the best naval films out there. It's described as thrilling, tense, with great characters, outstanding acting. And just to get you in the mood for this thrilling voyage, You have to think about how frightening mutiny and warfare at sea would actually be. If you're an officer, the crew largely outnumbered you and the chain of command was really fragile. The people who became officers often gained their position due to having a title or money to buy their commission. This meant that some officers had little experience in leadership Plus, there was a huge class divide between those on board, um, and there could be also all kinds of class and personality clashes as you're stuck with these people, you know, on a boat at sea. Mm -hmm. And many of the sailors didn't want to be there either. As you see in this film, lots of men never actually signed up for the Navy, but they were forced into service by violent press gangs. And the British Navy was so huge at this time that the manpower needed facilitated this forced conscription and any man aged 18 to 55 could be forced into the Navy. Usually it was just merchant sailors, but sometimes also ordinary men would be pressed into the Navy. So they might get drunk and pass out and wake up, on a ship out at sea living in horrible conditions as a member of the Navy and it could mean that you would be at sea for years unable to see your family or return home imagine how angry and resentful you'd be you would definitely have plenty of reason to revolt or stir up trouble therefore respect for command and order could soon be lost and once that happens things really quickly Descend into chaos and there's no escape at sea you're stuck with these people in this floating object and largely at their mercy there's no mobile phones there's no radios there's no rescue and the results could be violent bloody and brutal hence why this film's description says the decks ran red and then if you're not killed in the mutiny the sea can kill you. You can starve to death or any number of things can happen to you at sea. But then if you're a mutineer and your mutiny didn't succeed, mutiny was a capital offence and you'd be punished with death, usually by hanging. Meanwhile, um, sea battles often meant that certain death, with ships assaulting each other at open sea with cannon and gunfire. So many people died from horrific shrapnel wounds as the wooden ships splintered apart um, when they were hit with cannonballs. And if the ship caught fire, you're dead. You're either burned to death or drowned. Um, you, when you jump overboard, you drowned. If you don't die in the actual battle, battle there's likelihood that the damaged ship might sink, mm-hmm. taking you down with it. So life at sea was really precarious. Um, you contend with the weather, food and water shortages. Um, it was often very brutal, dangerous. There was um, corporal punishment like floggings and you were stuck floating around with people that you didn't necessarily like or trust. So when it goes wrong, it goes really, really wrong,
1: mm-hmm. like
2: with the HMS Defiant, hence Damn the Defiant, or with the Titanic, of course. I mean, guys, imagine what that would have been like if it went badly.
0: Yes, um, in in regards to the mutiny theme, probably my favourite mutiny film I've seen was the 1930, 1930s version of Mutiny on the Bounty with Clark Gable and Charles Lawton that was and also the, the that was also remade in the 60s with um, Marlon Brando yeah but this one I got to tell you from what from what you've described about the um, the defiant it does I'm really really interested in seeing this one uh, John what about you have you seen um, Mutiny on the Bounty?
1: No, no, I haven't. So, um, yeah, it's one I'm, I'm very keen to see. Um, <clears throat> like I said, uh, what you said, Suzanne's quite fascinating. I didn't, I, I think there were some jokes, even Simpson references where, you know, people wake up drunk and, and end up on a Navy ship that I didn't, re- <laughs> I didn't really realize, you know, some of that was part of history as well. So that's, mm. that's quite fascinating. So yeah, no, it's, it's one that I'm, um, yeah, it just sounds like a horrible s- situation being and, and like I said, it sounds like a very tense film, and and from what I was reading as well, it sounds like it's got some really great sort of battles in regards to the ships themselves. So um, yeah, no, I'm 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 very keen to check this one out.
0: <clears throat> yeah, Suzanne, as you mentioned before about being pushed into the navy, um, yeah, um, with um, in for my perspective, um, I, I know it, it happens today even because. Um, just hmm. say, for example, I go to Greece for a holiday and I'm there, for 12, I'm there for 12 weeks or more. If I stay in Greece for 12 weeks or more, I'm automatically drafted into the army because my parents were uh, Greek, um, uh, Greek citizens. And um, I can't believe that still happens to this day. Um, it's just ridiculous. Wow. It's, yeah, that is true. I didn't, like, every time, if I stay one day more than 12 weeks... I'm automatically drafted. It's it's terrifying thought, but um, that's why I always stay six to eight weeks max. I can't do any, can't do long holidays like that.
2: Mm. But yeah, I mean, you you guys, you'd be contenders for being bopped over the head with a mallet and waking <laughs> up out at sea. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yeah that the maritime setting it really heightens that sense of claustrophobia and danger and tension like you said and i have read it is a very tense film mm. so yeah the more we understand about um i think the history behind some of these films the more we can appreciate what's actually going on how dangerous it was how people felt um you know, why they didn't want to be there, why they revolt. And, yeah, I did see um, in the trailer they there are those big, big set pieces with huge naval battles that are staged. They look really spectacular. So mm. I was really excited when I saw the trailer. I just thought, oh, that looks amazing, really exciting. And, yeah, you have to just think how dangerous that actually was. At the time.
0: Yeah. And um, continuing on with the maritime theme, now we're up to the last film for June. Imprint number 137, The Long Ships, released in 1964. The Viking adventurers who challenged the seas and conquered the world. Viking brothers Rolf, played by Richard Widmark, and Orm, played by Russ Tamblum from West Side Story, Steal the, the Norse king's funeral ship, as well as his beautiful daughter Gerda, played by Biba Lonka, And head off in the search of the fabled Mother of Voices, a huge solid gold bell as tall as three tall men. Brothers battle a maelstrom, a mutinous crew and vengeful Moorish troops led by Prince Elmanush, played by the late great Sidney Poitier. Highlighted by rousing battle scenes, daring escapes, and humorous interludes. This action-packed Viking adventure saga was directed by legendary cinematographer Jack Cardiff and starring Richard Widmark and Sidney Portier. Special features and technical specs are 1080p high-definition presentation, special features to be confirmed, original theatrical trailer, original aspect ratio of 235 by 1, LPCM 2.0 mono audio, optional English hard-of-hearing subtitles, and limited edition slipcase on the first 1,500 copies with unique artwork. Yet another one I'm ashamed to say have not seen. Uh, Suzanne, have you seen this one?
2: Yeah, I have. I've got it on DVD because there was actually a local, in Australia that is, dvd of this film and i had a rewatch just to prepare for today um yeah it's a real fun one this one how about you john
1: no it's one i haven't seen but um <clears throat> i think you know from what i was was researching it looks yeah it looks right up my alley and I think, um, you know, once again, I think, like you said earlier in the episode, some of these borderline, uh, maybe a little bit of exploitation or sword and sandals. It looks like this one possibly may, by, by from what I've seen and the looks of it. But uh, it, it looks like a lot of fun. So I, I I can't wait to to dig into this one as well.
2: It definitely is that it's definitely falls into that subgenre of the sword and sandal films, um, specifically that sub-genre of sword and sandal films about Vikings, which included um, a few films like Vikings from 1958, which is probably the most well-liked and popular of all these films or best known. Then there's The Norseman uh, from 1978, The Viking Queen, from 1967 and Alfred the Great from 1969. Um, There was also a cycle of uh, Viking sword and sandal films from Italy as well. Um, uh, This film also cashed in on the success of films like El Cid that also included conflict with people referred to as the Moorish people or Moors. The Muslim inhabitants of Northwest Africa, the Iberian Peninsula, and the Mediterranean at this time. It's very loosely based on the book series The Long Ships by Swedish author Franz G. Uh, Banks, which began in 1941. Um, there was a series of books, and then it was first translated to English in 1954. It's directed by Jack Cardiff. You mentioned the cinematographer, and he has a background in these epics, having worked on Caesar and Cleopatra in 1945 and lots of really, really amazing films like Black Narcissus, The Red Shoes, which I know you love, Tony, Foreign oh, yes. and Peace, 1956, and of course, 1958's Vikings. So I know you you love some of those films, don't you, Tony?
0: Oh, I adore The Red Shoes. Absolutely love Black Narcissus, and The Vikings, and um War and Peace from 1956. That was that was a really good version. But there but there was one other version from 1968, which to me is the superior War and Peace. Mm. The, well- the seven-hour Russian epic by Boris Pudachov mm. that was that is just probably the best best film version of War and Peace ever made, in my opinion.
2: Well, uh, Jack Cardiff, who directed this one, like, um, yeah, he he was uh, photographed many great films, so we can expect some really nice photography mm. in this film. It was filmed in Serbia, which was at the time part of Yugoslavia, um, but the decision to film here was criticised largely due to the Cold War tensions with communist states. The story takes place in the late Viking era, so around the 10th century when the Viking civilization was moving away from their pagan religion to Christianization, and we see this backdrop of varied religions in this film as the pagan Vikings encounter Christians and Muslims in their travels and this is quite authentic to the era. And we have a misconception that people of this time were maybe primitive or to an extent quite isolated, but that's not true. They were well aware of and connected to the known world surrounding them and travelled widely, mainly necessitated by conquest and trade. We see a lot of this in the Vikings TV show, which is, of course, super popular, or was super popular, and we've just had a new series of that come out. Did you guys watch any of that TV show? Oh,
0: no, unfortunately. I would have loved to, but I've got so many TV shows on my radar. (laughs) Uh, That's definitely one of them. But I have yet to see a single episode of
1: the Vikings. But I have nothing
2: but
1: good stuff. No, no, I haven't. But I know of it. And I Um, know that everyone was talking about it, but I I didn't get around to seeing it.
2: It's super popular. Anyway, and now we've got more Viking stuff here. So the Vikings were really advanced in terms of seafaring, at which they're very skilled. And there's archaeological evidence which shows that Vikings established sophisticated trade routes reaching from the Baltic to the Mediterranean, the UK, North Africa to the Middle East. And today, ancient graffiti can still be seen inside the mosque of Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, where two Vikings carved their names in runes around the ninth century. So we know that they did travel, so that aspect of this film is true. Much of the plot centers around Viking Rolfi, played by Richard Widmark, and his vying quest with King Ale Mansu, played by Sydney Portier, as they both try and re- retrieve a fabled solid gold bell. It has some really big set pieces like full-sized Viking ships, uh, which is quite magnificent. There's also a really crazy giant torture device called the steel mare which gets dragged out but while Bengstensen's novel drew from old Norse Icelandic sagas and medieval accounts by the time we get to this film much of the historical detail and accuracy has been thrown out the window or over the side of the longship it doesn't really matter though, because this is above all a really fun adventure movie, and that's what it is. It's like something from an old storybook. It's more like Jason and the Argonauts as he searches for the Golden Fleece, Rolfi searches for this mythological Golden Bell. It's really got that vibe to it. It's also a very light hearted film. Um, It's got debaucherous revelry in the Great Viking Hall and the absurd scene where the Vikings sack the king's harem. Uh, Also, watch out for the sexual innuendo with the harem eunuch. It's really quite silly, (laughs) Um, but you can't help but like it. This is one of those films that, you know, you definitely would have watched on TV during the daytime as a kid on the weekend, or maybe you saw it at the cinema and been wrapped up in the adventure of it all. It's a real swashbuckler, like very much so, very much in that fun, light, sword and sandals genre. Um, and interestingly, when it came out, it was heavily cut with most of the violence cut out, which just amazes me because this movie is just wall-to-wall fighting, and I just think there wouldn't have been much of a movie left, so maybe when you go online, some of the bad reviews might be people that have seen these cut-down versions, which were also out there on um, VHS, I think. So, you know, give it a go. You can see all the fighting, the torture devices, the harem, it's a real fun one, do you guys like Vikings?
1: Oh, I love Viking films,
0: absolutely.
1: yeah, I do mm. I like the history as well this history of it, so it always fascinated me, so yeah, definitely no it it, it sounds like fun this one, like I said Suzanne, i'm I'm looking forward to seeing it because I like those Italian you know sword and sandal films of the time. um so this seems you know being a different country like Yugoslavian but you know obviously being that same sort of vein genre I'm um very keen to check this one out so yeah it's um and uh it's high on my list also yeah Sydney Sydney Portia like I said I've seen a lot of his films is one I haven't haven't seen so um that's also uh got me very keen to check it out as well same here really excited for this release
0: yeah final thoughts on this month it's, it's a great historical month, and as we said earlier in the episode, some people aren't um, interested much in the historical films, but I'm hoping after hearing this episode with Suzanne's fantastic thoughts, you will change your mind. But um, I will say I'm really looking forward to seeing Barabbas again, and of course i Night like to remember, especially with these extra features coming soon, and Damn the Defiant. They're my main three that I'm really excited to watch.
2: John,
1: how about you? Uh, yeah, um, I'm I'm very excited about this month. Uh, very keen now after discussing them in detail. It's given me an appreciation for them a little bit more, kind of breaking them down. So, uh, yeah, like I said, they're, they're not just historical epics. They are so much more than that in terms of the genres they mix. Um, yeah, it's the same me, Tony. Like, Roberts is one of the big ones based on what, Yeah, you know, like I said, I, I have memories many years ago, but... But uh, based on what Suzanne said about it being quite a dark film, I'm, I'm very keen to revisit that. Um, yeah, Night to Remember, of course, brilliant. And and now The, the Long Ships is one that is really, uh, I really want to chuck on as well because it sounds like a lot of fun. So, um, yeah, just a, a great month overall. Like I said, just um, a variety of, of different historical uh, takes on events. And, um, yeah, I think people should really give this month a chance and uh, and check it out, definitely. Absolutely. Uh, Suzanne, what about your final thoughts?
2: Mm, Well, you know, I'm excited for all of them. And um, while these films are lovely and escapist, I think they also do give a bit of insight into our shared past, um, at least for the Western world, and they bring events to life in an entertaining capacity. And even if they're not always historically accurate, they definitely give a glimpse into history and they might even spark an interest in a certain historical era or event or person which is really the part of the beauty to these films because a lot of people discover history or something they really love through historical fiction whether film or books and i think that the historical genre and especially these kinds of maritime and biblical sword and sandal epics have fallen out of fashion and are really a bit neglected these days, but they have so much to offer, not just as an insight into history and people, but they also have action, drama, intrigue, romance, all of the things that we expect in contemporary set films, but just with different clothing. I think there's also possibly the misconception that anything historical, whether in subject or even an older film, is not relevant to modern society and our concerns. But while there are some things at odds with our modern values and politics, many of the concerns that we have today are the same as even in the 17th century or even 44 BC, when Julius Caesar's Senate stabbed him in the back. If that isn't a metaphor for Australian politics, then I don't know what is. Um, Sure, we aren't worried about huge torture devices anymore or getting (laughs) kicked out of the King's harem or being fed to lions, But certain things are at the core of being human, like love, friendship, freedom, loyalty, happiness, sadness, spirituality, and sadly, even conflict and war, which we're still dealing with today. And all of these films deal with those very human themes. And sometimes we can explore these contemporary concerns with genre film like historical drama it, give us, it gives us a way to explore to criticize and empathize without being overt and yeah just like with any genre film sometimes you can say things or infer things or express something that you couldn't necessarily act out openly in a contemporary setting um, so, I love that Imprint is releasing this collection. I think it's also really, really important. All of the streaming service services have grossly neglected older films and particularly films like this. And I think there's the misconception that younger generations won't be interested or won't be able to relate, but they're really not getting the chance to see them and decide for themselves so maybe some people that haven't seen these kinds of films before might get to see them on blu-ray i really hope so and that maybe they'll like them and i'm really 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 hoping to see more historical stuff and definitely more sword and sandal stuff coming our way from imprint because the whole sword and sandal and peplum has been really really neglected, so that's my final thoughts
0: and well final thoughts they were I absolutely agree more sword and so, <clears throat> sorry more sword and sandal um films must be seen with a from a wider audience today and yes, with this month that imprints releasing it's great and I'm hoping that there'll be that there'll be more sword and sandal epics coming soon from imprint. John, your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, <clears throat> I think, um, like said, Suzanne, they do reflect current society, and I think people can learn a lot from these films, um, historical lessons. But we, we don't seem to learn any lessons. Uh, but yeah, it's um it's it, it's a great great set of films, and um and yeah, like so I feel like they they should be rediscovered, and people should give them a go. And I think there's this this misconception that people think historical films are, are boring and um. that's a problem which i I saw a lot of comments you know like you said a lot of snooze emojis some people just not even giving it a chance like you're not even looking at them because they just think oh it's you know it's going to be boring but but most of the time they're not boring they're actually fun and exciting and um and and you know epic in a sense so yeah look i i reckon that it should people should see it and um and the fact that they're giving it the treatment is great because like i was saying earlier i feel like these sort of films are being lost and and, and no one's touching them. Like I said, no other labels are really going after these type of films. So I hope that they sell well so they can get more in the collection because, yeah, I feel like they're very neglected. And it's crazy to think that these huge budget films are now forgotten in time and not even being, um, you know, yeah, restored or put on a proper release. So, yeah, kudos to um, Imprint for giving them the, the, the treatment they deserve. I couldn't
0: agree more with both of you now that was the end of episode number four for the um june announcement titles suzanne as always it was an absolute pleasure to have you on and thank you so much for your insights with the films and your knowledge and your research it's impeccable as always
2: thanks so much for having me i really love talking about all these films it was really interesting revisiting some of them and reading about some of these things again and if you like a little bit of history and a little bit of supernatural and a little bit weird please do check out my podcast laudanum and lace
0: Yes, yeah, so i'll post the link on that once this episode's up on air on the facebook groups definitely there and now uh, coming soon will be our first episode with one of our valued members of the of the fa- of our Facebook groups of the Imprint Films Blu-ray Collection fan group and Imprint Cast, we posted a, po- a poll one week ago with three titles. The titles were Fire in the Sky, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, and The Straight Story. And the winner of that type tit- of that poll was Fire in the Sky. So within the next within the, within the upcoming weeks. We'll be bringing the episode, we'll put we we'll record the episode soon with our um, with our first guest from our, one of our groups. Really excited about that one. And follow our Facebook groups, the Imprint Films Blu-ray Collection fan group and Imprint Cast Facebook pages. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And once again, Suzanne, thank you. And, of course, John, thank you so much for joining in. And mm-hmm. I hope so much. Bye. Bye.